Not being in this pulpit often, it would be custom to say a little bit about myself. My name's Jordy, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Grace, and I'm especially privileged to be one of the pastors in Grace Student Ministry. We call ourselves Grace Youth, and I'm, I hope you guys enjoy as much as I do just worshiping amongst so many young voices. It's been, it's been an incredible day so far, and I'm grateful to be with these guys every week. I also have a wife, Kayla, and a beautiful red-headed son, Logan. He's awesome. You guys will see him in the lobby. He would like you to know that he likes some personal distance, but he's super friendly. He just likes about six feet. So he told me to say that. He's 14 months old, and so it's hard for him, but I'm here to speak for him. But he loves you guys. He's super social, loves people, and I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. Today, we're talking about holiness, the depth at which you understand holiness is very much related to your respect and you could even say your trust in God. Holiness is spoken about in the Old Testament 431 times, almost 200 times in the New Testament. It's one of the primary words that God has divinely given us to understand him. And I say that before confessing that it is difficult to define, it's a, complex, it's a complex word even though it's an important word. The Greek word used for holiness is hagios and means much of the same thing the Old Testament word gadesh means which is pure, morally blameless or set apart as in set apart for holy use. And usually following such a short definition if you were to Google the word holy would be about three pages of theology. You have to understand that with a lot of these ancient Middle Eastern words or words, that, especially words that have been given from heaven, is they're complex. They're not just easily definable. They kind of encompass a whole lifestyle, a whole essence, a whole way of being. There, there are words in English that are of similar in complexity. One would actually be cool, of all things. The word cool. If I were to say that someone in this room was cool, some might interpret that as they are cold. We should probably turn up the temperature in here or dance a little bit more when we worship. Like something needs to happen. Get this person tea. They are cold. But I also, I, and I could mean that, but I also could mean like that's a cool person. Like they're awesome. And if you asked me why are they cool, I could explain it. And, but then you could point at someone else and say, well, aren't they cool as well, but they're completely different with completely different qualities. It's, it's complex, but having grown up around the word, most of us having grown up around the word, we just kind of get it, like you just do. And that's how, that's how holiness is supposed to be. That's how aloha is for people who are native to the island of Hawaii or have moved there. Aloha is not just hello. It's used as goodbye, and it's also a lifestyle word. It encompasses a way of being hospitable, positive, at peace, warm, and welcoming, and it's a, it's, a great, it's a great word. And the scripture says that not only is God holy, pure, morally blameless, set apart, scripture says that God is holy, holy, holy to set him apart. Only God can be holy, holy, holy. The, the use of the word three times represents wholeness or completeness or perfection. God is completely holy, we ourselves are actually called to be holy as followers of God. First Peter 1.15 says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That is a heavy call. Some translations put it this way, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Like, how are you or, you or I supposed to be perfect? Is that even possible? That's a good thing to wrestle with. That's a good question to wrestle with. Can I even be holy? I, I think a way of saying it in today's language that really honors the original translation is to say, be holy like, be like God who is holy. Be holy like God who is holy, holy, holy. Or be like God who is holy. It's commanded of us, and so not only is holiness a means to understanding the nature of God, it's actually a quality that you and I are called to live out. And so diving into holiness more, it's important to say, sometimes we stop when we're defining holiness, and it kind of just comes off as holiness means God didn't do anything wrong. Holiness is not just another way of saying God did not sin. God's moral purity and lack of any flaw is an aspect of God's holiness, it's a part of it, but God's holiness actually permeates every aspect of his being. God is not holy and then loving separately. God's love is holy. God's love is perfect, it's set apart, it's greater than any other love that any other being is capable of. God is all loving, he's perfect. God is not merciful some days and holy other days. God's mercy is holy. He's full of grace. He's merciful in a way that no other being is capable of. His mercy is perfect, always just, always fair. God's holiness, his perfection, applies to every quality and and every category. He is fully everything that he is. And so, yes, God's holiness is intimidating, but God's holiness is not just the contrast between our moral failure and God's moral perfection. Even if you somehow were without sin, if you stood before God in all his greatness and all his glory, it would still cause you to fall in worship because he is perfect in love, full of grace, goodness, trustworthy. He is holy, holy, holy. And so question, and you can't say Jesus, you need to say a living person, who is it for you that if they walked in this room, you just couldn't contain yourself? Like you would just be so giddy and just couldn't even believe they were here. Like if Taylor Swift walked in the room who can sell out Madison Square Garden within four minutes of announcing a tour, you found out they're just an old friend of Jonathan and Mary's. They'd never tell us, they're so humble. And she just wanted to see like what they're up to and what they do for a living, finally had a break, you know? And she rolls in here, I would not wanna be preaching. I would not wanna be preaching that day because everyone would be whispering and taking pictures and talking and everyone would forget there's a sermon because it's Taylor Swift. Swift. Maybe some of you hate Taylor Swift. Okay, what if it's LeBron? Maybe for some of you, it's George W. Bush. You just love the guy. You miss those Papa John's commercials where he's like, this is America's pizza. You're like, yes, it is. I love Papa John's. You just miss George W. Bush, whoever it is for you. Like if it were Justin Bieber, middle school and high school girls would reroute their commute from their seat to their parents' car to make sure they cross paths with them, right? And they'd be like, oh my gosh, he saw me, smiled at me. If it doesn't work out with Haley, I'm here. It's like, no, you're not. You're a kid. And he's like, 30. Stop it. (laughs) You have to understand that God, if he wanted to, he could steal any show by revealing his glory. Moses asked once to see God's glory. Um, Moses said, 
please show me your glory. Told you, he asked. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand. And he explains to Moses, here's the plan. I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of this rock. I'm gonna cover you with my hand. I'm gonna pass, I'm gonna pass by you with my glory and my face showing. And I'll remove my hand at the last minute and you can see the back of me. You can see the back of my head. And he ends, he says, but my face shall not be seen. And what God's really saying is, Moses, if you were to see my face, mind blown would not be an expression, it would be your autopsy report. Like, and God's not saying, it's not, it's not as if he's saying, if I tell you I'd have to kill you, right? Like they say in spy movies, or if I show you, I'll have to kill you. Like it's a secret, you can't tell anyone, I can't trust you. No, God's saying it's just nature. It's just the reality of who I am contrasted, my greatness contrasted with you. If I showed you my glory, you literally would not survive. You would not survive it. No human being could survive such an event. We worship people as though they are divine. But if you or I were to see God the divine unveiled in all his glory, it would be unfathomable. And so my question is, is that the type of God you are singing to this morning when we gather for worship? Is that the type of God that you, you, you are in a relationship with when you decide to look at garbage on the internet or ignore conviction on a certain sin in your life? Or do you subscribe to a very diminished version of the actual God? Way less powerful, way less weighty, way less get worthy of recognition, but oh so much more convenient. Reverence for God, holiness, I believe that it's, I believe it's an underrepresented topic. It was our theme for the winter retreat this year in Grace Youth Ministry, and I, re, I had the, kind of this vain tension in me going into it, just this sense of, because we, we want that retreat to go well, a lot of people go on it. If you ever wanna go on it, talk to me, we'd love to have you. But it's like, oh, is this gonna land? Like maybe I should have talked about God's love or what he does for us or deliverance from anxiety or something that just falls on our ears a little better because there's topics that fall on our ears better and those topics are good. I'm not diminishing any of them. I think we need to live more in light of grace and mercy and God's goodness and more in the peace that he offers us. But I also believe that we need to be well-rounded and that there's weightier, heavier talks that don't fall well on the ears that maybe we're not as prone to tune into. And so I was like, God, is this really the topic for the winter? retreat and I felt this strong, yes, like this is important. It's time that we talk about my holiness. I want people to know more deeply who I am and I felt the same sense for this morning and so we thought, youth takeover, let's bring, let's bring a topic that's been core to our year to the larger church. And so our text today, it's Isaiah 6. Isaiah was a prophet giving messages from God to the nation of Israel and this, this specific instance, Isaiah's being given a vision from God. It actually becomes a pivotal launching moment for him, but we're not gonna read that far. I wanna read it for you, though. Isaiah chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this whole visual is amazing because around this time, there was a lot of false gods and a lot of people in Israel were being led astray and there were art depictions of this throne room worshiping these false gods where the god would be veiled and covered and all these angelic beings, seraphim even, would be worshiping and there would be like, they would have a train on their robe, these gods would, and it would be long, like a bride, right? The longer the train, like the greater the glory. But if you actually look at the Greek in this instance, this is more accurately saying, the hem of the, like his gown. So like the little seam at the end of his train, that alone, the author saying, is filling the temple. And the angels, whereas the gods, the false gods in all these pictures, they were hiding from humanity. They were veiled. In this instance, the angels are hiding themselves from God's glory. They're using their wings to shield themselves. And seraphim, which by the way, if any, like, you know those like cute little angels that people like hang from trees and stuff like that? Not seraphim. I've never seen a cute decoration of a seraphim. Like six wings, eyes all over. They're said to, uh, church tradition holds that they were often depicted as flaming, like on fire. Many called them the burning ones in the ancient Middle East. And so picture these fiery angel figures shielding themselves from God's glory, just screaming out, holy, holy, holy. And the vision continues, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah... He was around in ancient days, he was there. He knew what things were like. There were these temples, and when God's presence was in the temple, these priests had to do like weeks of like cleansing rituals before they could even go in, and if they had lied or sinned or done anything they shouldn't, they would just fall dead in the temple. And so their friends would put ropes around their waist, so if they died, that's gross. They didn't have to just leave them there or go in and die too. They would just pull them out with the rope. And there's also the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament that if someone treated it in like a casual or just a lowly manner or they touched it or put their hand in the wrong spot, they could drop dead. Isaiah knew about Moses who had asked to see God's face and God's like, no, your mind will be blown. You can't do that, so I'll show you the back of my glory. And so Isaiah knows this, and, but all of a sudden, he's thrust into this vision, and he's in the temple, and he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. He's thinking, why am I not dead? How am I alive? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I didn't prepare for this. I should not be here. Then in verse six, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You're Isaiah. You're thinking, I'm dead. 
How did I make it this far? There's these seraphim. They're creepy. They have six wings. They cover everything, but somehow see and get around, right? And they, and they go to the altar, and they grab a burning coal. Like, they're, flat, they're on fire. The altar's on fire. The coal's hot. And they bring it over to Isaiah, and he's thinking, this is the moment. Like, this thing's gonna eat me or something. I know I don't belong here. And the seraphim touches the coal to his mouth, and he's transformed. He's suddenly without guilt. His sin is atoned for. It's symbolic because 700 years later, Jesus, who is the fullness of God, will come, and just like altars were put on a sacri- um, sacrifices were put on an altar to atone for sins, Jesus is going to go on the cross and he's going to die and he's gonna raise again and atone for our sins. And afterwards, encountering God's presence, encountering Jesus rather than killing us, will begin a transformative work in us, cleansing us, making us holy like him. And so Isaiah's mind is blown, not in a deadly way, his mind is blown because it's so good It's so good because how could it even be true that God in all his glory, God in all his perfection is going to make a way for relationship with us, for for you and I to be near to God. And it has since happened, right? Jesus came to earth and he lived as a human being and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And now scripture tells us that you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit. Imagine being alive for that transition, Imagine being Isaiah, to have seen what you've seen, to know, to know like the separation between us and God's glory, to have seen the throne room, to have seen the angelic worship with these beings shielding themselves from the radiance of God, and then to be told, you're now a temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't suppose that Isaiah is even capable after what he's seen to ever treat God as common to ever treat God with little regard. Like if Isaiah were to put on a cross necklace, it would be this huge, heavy, weighty, symbolic thing that he's putting around his neck. He would feel something. It would matter to him. His flawed being hosting the Lord. We know exactly what Isaiah would say. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Who am I to be the image of God upon this earth? Who am I to call Jesus friend? And you and I are meant to feel that. Like, woe are we, woe am I. Who am I to have a relationship with God? Who am I that that he would love me? Who am I to stand in his presence, to speak to him through prayer because he dwells within me? And then to have our minds blown even more and say, who am I that Jesus, the Son of God, would suffer for me? That he would go through what he went through on the cross. That he would let me call him friend, that he would send me to represent him to others in the world who are lost. God whose holiness is unfathomable got in the mud with humanity. In Isaiah, it's poetic. In reality, it was gruesome. Humanity during the crucifixion in Matthew 26. Then they spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Mocking him. Meanwhile, every word they spoke in mockery, only able to be spoken by the very breath that God gave them. Ironic, isn't it? 
And what's he doing on the cross in the first place? He's making a way for us to be in relationship with him, for us to encounter him. And now today, we encounter God's glory and holiness, not as a death sentence, but as purifying transformation. God's holiness today is good news for us. And I'm here to tell you that you are not just saved from the destination of hell. Like that is not the entire message of the gospel. That is a very important part of it. But that is not the whole thing. That is a piece. You are also saved from your depravity. You are also saved from your humanity, from your brokenness. You're not just left in your sin and left the way you are. You start a relationship with God now where you start to walk with him and be transformed by him and to be more like him today. Christianity does not wait till heaven. It's not just queued up and when you die, you begin this new journey. No, we baptize people. We pull them out of the water. We don't leave them there because it starts now. And so I have a question and I think it's really important. I'm, I, I'm praying in my heart that God really gives, just really gives us the security, the confidence in his grace and his gentleness towards us and the honest perspective into our own hearts that we can really take inventory today. I wanna ask you a question. Do you want to be morally perfect? How does the idea of being so holy like God in character, in thought, in action, make you feel, actually? Like, how does the idea of being so transformed, so like Jesus, that young people, you are more like Jesus than you are like the other kids at your school? You're not normal because of him anymore. How, how does the idea of lo loving Jesus and being so transformed by him make you feel if it means that all your coworkers know you love him? Like, you're the, you're the Jesus guy, you're the Jesus lady at work, at, you're the Jesus neighbor. Like, people just know they can tell. How does the idea of being so transformed by God make you feel if it means that you actually start changing or cleaning up your choices or entertainment or letting go of your sin of choice? How does that make you feel? Does it sound awesome? Does it sound like freedom? Does it sound like a blessing from above? Or does it sound like a straitjacket? Like, ooh, mm, gonna have trouble breathing and feeling like I'm really myself and authentic and I don't think I'm gonna, enjoy, I'm gonna miss out on things I enjoy and not really be able to be a way that I enjoy anymore. Like, it's constricting. Could it be that often we see sin a little bit like salt? Yeah, too much ruins the meal, but a little bit, the spice of life, right? Like, like that's like, it's just great. It just kind of keeps things fun and relaxed and easygoing. I believe most of us, we want God's blessing. We want his peace. We want his healing. But do you want God's morality, his holy morality in your life? And do you want it completely or just partially? Like, God, take this addiction away, but don't talk to me about anything else. I didn't ask you about that. Don't bring it up. Don't bother me about it. Let me do me. Like, do you want the whole thing or just a part of it? There's a country song. It's about a girl. Most are. It's by Love and Theft, and the artist is essentially describing his dream girl. The song's called Angel Eyes. Shout out to 2011, the year I graduated high school. And one of the key lines in the song is there's a little bit of devil 
in those angel eyes. There's a little bit of devil in those angel eyes. Some of the other lines, she's a little bit of heaven with a wild side. She's got a country heart a mile wide. There's a little bit of devil in those angel eyes. Um, she's, she ain't your typical preacher's daughter. What's wrong with preacher's daughters? I don't have a daughter yet, just a son. But, and then he says, she'll leave you dreaming, man. There ain't no doubt. And I remember hearing that song on the radio and just feeling tension because it both resonated with me and bothered me at the same time. I'm like, yeah, this girl sounds awesome. Wait a second. She does, but do I need a little bit of devil in those angel eyes? Like, if I'm being honest, is that my dream girl? Like, she's not, it's not just angel eyes, right? Like, there's, there's a little bit of devil in there. And do I actually think that in order to experience fullness of life that I need a little bit of devil in my eyes? Hmm. Number one country song in 2011 tells me that these guys weren't alone in describing their dream girl. Some of the qualities they're singing about just sounded fun, but they were contrasted. Like, like she ain't your typical country's, like, uh, preacher's daughter. She's, she's, not just, she's not just at the church. She'll also leave you dreaming. She's not just heavenly. She'll leave you dreaming, man. Why, why is, like, being fun contrasted with being Christ-like? Like, why does Satan get credit for us being fun? or having a good time. What, and this, this is really what I'm getting at. What do we have wrong? Like if you don't desire God's transformation, if you are complacent, not wanting Jesus to get any closer, not wanting, to, to, not wanting him to purify you anymore, could it be that you either have a distorted view of what a Christ-like person looks like or a distorted view of Christ himself? If you're like, God, don't get any closer, don't change me anymore. I wanna hold on to this. Is there something wrong with how you view God? I know for myself, uh, I was in church pretty much my whole life growing up, and one of our church experiences ended up being really toxic. That church came crashing down, and it was really legalistic, and a lot of the people that were presented to me as a young child as like the super spiritual ones, like the church lady. Like she's the church lady. When I got close, they were sharp, they were legalistic, they were judgmental, they were condemning, they weren't life-giving, they were life-sucking, like it was just this vacuum of humanity the closer you got to them. And that left me thinking, for, I know that sounds heavy, but I also think a lot of us have experienced that. Maybe you have a relative who like, they're always praying, they're always doing devotions, but you got close and something was just off. Can I tell you that that's, that means that person is distorting your view of God, they're not reflecting him accurately. God is good, he is loving, he's full of grace. I understand feeling that way. Could it be if we don't want God near, we have a distorted view of what a Christ-like person's like or Christ himself or just that we trust too much in the empty promises of sin? Maybe we simply give Satan too much credit. I can't fix your view of holiness and God in the conclusion of a sermon, but I am hoping to bring to light any flaws in our mentality. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because if we do not fully desire to be holy and pure like God, if we have a distorted view of him, and that causes us to keep distance, we will always at some level keep God at an arm's distance. You determine the intentional distance between you and God. 
You determine the distance between you and God in that relationship. He's not holding out on you. He's not like, yeah, Kathy just prays weird, so I don't really wanna be that close, right? He's not like, oh, this person just drives me nuts. I don't wanna be friends with them. I wanna be friends with those people over there. He got, God, God is fully mature. He's fully an adult. Like, he, like he's perfect. He's not playing games. He's not dysfunctional, right? right? Like that's not happening. God is not holding out on you. He loves you. Revelation 3 says that he's knocking on the door of your life and he desires to have a meal with you. You determine the intentional distance you keep in your relationship with God. And we do it because Satan leads through lies, specifically doubt about who God is. If he can get us to have a distorted view of God or a distorted view of Christ-like people, we'll do the work for him, right? There's a little bit of devil in those angel eyes. The problem isn't that the man in this song is willing to love a woman who isn't perfect. That's Christ-like, that's, that's great, that's commendable. The problem with this song is the celebration of the devil in those angel eyes. When we don't fully want God to transform us, when we don't fully let him into our lives, when we're not surrendered to him, we're not just limiting how much we copy Jesus. We don't just imitate Christ. I know scripture says be imitators of Christ, but we also manifest Christ. And so in a way, when you keep distance in your relationship with God, you're saying, God, I don't wanna fully embody you. I want to somewhat embody you, but also be seasoned with a splash of Satan. And when I put it like that, it sounds really like dumb. It just, it sounds, it sounds ridiculous, right? But in reality, I felt like that for most of my life and I think a lot of us feel like that and we understand what it's like. But on the contrary, God's holiness is not a straitjacket, it's good news for us. We don't need Satan around, God's perfect, he alone is sufficient. He's the only one we can fully depend on. And so with that being said, I think for a lot of us, if there's, if there's a tension in us, like, wow, I have, I have been, I've been walking with a diminished version of the actual God. Like I have not been looking at him as being holy and full of glory and the creator of the universe. I've been undermining him. Or for you, maybe you realize like I, I think I might have a distorted view of God or I think I might have a bad taste of what it looks like to be all in with Christ. And so I do keep distance. If that's you, friend, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to respond. I think too often, and it's easy, I, I've felt this a lot of my life, that it's often easy to just walk out of a moment where God's like kind of convicting us or putting something on our heart or calling us into something deeper. Like we should always be moving towards Jesus, right? But it's easy just to fall back into the mundane of a week. I used to have these moments with God and then like three months later, God would remind me of it and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I forgot, I didn't do anything. I'm the same, what am I doing? And I'd remind myself, so my plea with you guys is like don't, don't, just, don't just realize something, some work that needs to be done in you or a moment you need to have with God and just walk away from it. And so as the worship team comes up and sings this last song, you have an opportunity. Maybe it's just you alone at your chair, sitting down during the song or standing and praying with him. Maybe it's taking advantage of the altar prayer team that comes up afterwards or the prayer room next door. Maybe it's tonight before you go to bed, like you just need to have a moment and say, God, what do I have wrong about you? 
what do I not realize about you that I always keep a little bit of distance? That I don't fully trust you with, what, with your will for my life? Or God, what do, what do I not realize about just how great and how big and how significant you are that I live for lesser things? When the reality is that I couldn't even fathom what it would be like to see you. I wanna take a moment and pray. God, you are good, you are, you are gentle, you are loving. I pray for anyone who, they're, they're scared of conviction, they're scared of being honest before you. Would you help them to trust you, God? You are, you are a good surgeon of our heart. And God, I pray, I pray that none of us would live in delusion, but we would always, we would always know where we stand with you. I pray for all of us who we keep some intentional distance from you. God, would you help us heal from any past hurts, from any distorted views that fall short of who you are? God, we wanna see you clearly. We wanna see you how you've actually presented yourself. God, we wanna see your holiness and because of it, appreciate your grace that much more. And so work in our hearts, God. Don't leave us where we're at. We wanna be transformed. We wanna be holy as you are holy. May all of us as temples, God, any space you occupy, you say this is holy ground. May we ourselves be your holy ground. In your name we pray, amen.